you guys give Richard and Hara a thank you? I love that prayer. It's, it talked about being with us as we wait. And waiting, that's not something New Yorkers do typically very well, is it? We don't like to wait for the trains. Uh, and if you live in this neighborhood, it's even more miserable because our train is the R. The other night, I went to a Christmas party in Bushwick. I had to take the R to the G. Okay, that was, that was, it was like the worst commute ever, the R and the G, the two worst trains. We don't like to wait. New Yorkers don't like to wait. And if there's more than two people on the line at the bagel shop, what do you do? You go to the next bagel shop. You're like, I'm not waiting on, in that line. We don't like to wait. New Yorkers don't like to wait. My wife gets, uh, she laughs at me when anytime I'm out of the city and I'm driving, she's like, you can't drive like that outside of New York. People think you're a psychopath. I'm like, you're honking them because they don't like to wait. But waiting is difficult. It's waiting is difficult when it's our commute, but it's even more difficult when it is things that are very near to our heart. Um, Waiting for a child is difficult. Waiting for a spouse is difficult. Waiting for a job is difficult. Waiting for healing is very difficult. Waiting for the grief to go away, the pain to end. Waiting is very, very difficult. It's hard. And many of us, when we're in a season of waiting or what feels sometimes like a lifetime of waiting, we want to know, will the waiting ever end? Has God forgotten about me, we often think in our minds. How long, O Lord, will you forsake me? And how long will you hide your face from me, David prayed. This morning, we're looking at a man named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, and this couple was well acquainted with the pain of waiting. And from this story, we learn a thing or two about the faithfulness of God in our times of waiting. So Luke chapter 1, Zechariah was a priest in Israel. It's a big deal to be a priest in Israel. And he also had a wife at that time, or he had a wife named Elizabeth, and they had no children. And they were now, the scriptures tell us, well past their childbearing years. I mean, we get the idea that they were elderly. They were advanced in age, the scriptures say. And the fact that they didn't have a child would have been extremely painful for them in many ways because you get the sense, just reading the scriptures, that they wanted a child. Like so many of us do, they wanted a child. And so the personal pain of that, many of you know the pain of that. Waiting for a child, and it feels like God's not going to answer that prayer. It feels like it, it, you're waiting to have that prayer answered. So there was personal pain in the waiting for them, but there was also social pain. Because in their culture, to not have a child, the barrenness was seen as they, people would have assumed, especially in a religious community, they would have assumed that you are barren because of some sin you've committed. So people would have thought, you know, yeah, Zachariah's a priest, but man, Elizabeth must have done something. Like, why, why are they not having a child? Like, is God punishing them? And there also would have been financial pain. Like, they didn't have 401ks back then. Vanguard didn't exist. Like, they, that, that wasn't, so like, what people banked on was them to have a firstborn son that when they got past their ability to earn for themselves, their children would care for them. So there's all this pain in their lives. There's financial pain, social pain, and then most deeply, there's personal pain of loss. And they've probably given up on the hope that they would ever have a child because it would seem impossible at this point. But they remained faithful to God. They're such a picture of faithfulness, Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
The text says that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. Zechariah, throughout the pain, throughout the longing and the waiting, continued his duties as a priest. And even as the people looked on him with scorn and talked about his wife behind his back, probably, he was faithful to God, to the calling that God had given him. But then one day, Zechariah gets like the call up from the minor leagues to the big leagues. I mean, this is like, he's called upon to go and burn the incense, sort of prepare the way for the sacrifice in the temple, in the holy place. This is, I mean, this was a once in a lifetime task for a priest in Israel, and without a doubt, the greatest honor of, their, of his career. And so he's excited, he's prayed up, he's ready to go. You know, he puts on the robe, he's got the rope and the, all the thing, and he walks into the very presence of God, the holiest of holy places in the temple. And he's going there to burn the incense, prepare the way for the sacrifice, and he thinks he's going in there alone, and when he gets in there, there's already somebody waiting there for him. There's an angel sitting at the altar. And Zechariah, like, freaks out. I mean, like, he's scared, clearly, because Luke chapter 1, verse 13, the angel, whose name is Gabriel, says, hey, like, don't freak out. His first words are, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John, which means God is gracious. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and, be, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, referring to the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And the angel says to Zechariah, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And you're like, okay, well, what prayer? Well, you have to think, I mean, like, what do you think Zechariah has been praying for in his life? We know probably two things that he's been praying for diligently for his lifetime. One, as a husband and as someone who desired a child, he likely prayed for a child for years and years and years and years and years and years. It may have been decades since he last prayed that prayer, but you know he prayed that prayer many times in his life. Through tears, through pain, through sobbing, God, give us a child. But as a priest, we also know that one of his jobs was to constantly pray on behalf of the people of God for their deliverer to come. He would have spent hours of his life praying for the coming of the promised Messiah, for the coming of Israel's deliverer. And the angel says, essentially, both prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son. That prayer has been answered. And verse 17, that son is going to prepare the people for the Messiah that is to come. So it's like, whoa, the two big things that he's been praying for are happening all in this moment. And the angel, this is so interesting, is basically quoting Malachi chapter 3 and 4. If you're from Brooklyn, you may have thought Malachi was Malachi, but it's, Bro it's Malachi, okay? The prophet Malachi in Malachi's, Malachi chapter 3 and 4 prophesied that there would come a man with the power and of the spirit of Elijah that would prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah. 
This is the prophet Malachi said, look, there's coming a day where a man in the spirit of Elijah is going to come and he's going to preach that the Messiah is on his way and the Messiah will be on his way. So that was the prophecy. And so the, ba- the angel basically just rewords God's promise from the book of Malachi. And Zechariah would have been so familiar with this promise. And the reason he would have been familiar with this promise, yes, it's because he was a priest and he would have had to have known the Bible, but he would have really known this particular promise from Malachi because Malachi was the last prophet of Israel up to this point. So there's all these prophets in the Old Testament, and then there's Malachi. Malachi speaks. One of his prophecies is that there's going to come this, uh, this forerunner to the Messiah. He's going to come in the spirit of Elijah, and, and then he's going to proclaim that the Messiah is on his way, then the Messiah is going to come. And people are like, okay, that's awesome. But that is the last prophet of Israel at this time. That's the last book of their Bible is the book of Malachi. And so I think of it like this. I mean, like they were longing, and, and, and from Malachi to this point, there's been 400 years of waiting. 400 years from the last prophet to now the, uh, the birth of, John, of Zechariah's son. And there, 400 years of waiting, like waiting. We talk, we're talking about waiting. 400 years of, of silence. They haven't, the people of Israel have not heard from God in 400 years. And the last thing God said to them through the prophet Malachi is that there was, there was, a, four, there was a, a prophet that would come before the Messiah, then the Messiah would come. And so I think of it like this. Everybody's got their favorite TV show, right? And you guys know that every season finale of every show always ends on a big cliffhanger. And then, I don't know why, but these days it used to be like the season would end and then it was like you'd wait like six months and the next season would happen. Now it's like they wait like three years from seasons. You know what I mean? And so like the big finale happens, you're left with this big cliffhanger, and you're like, I can't wait for next season. And they're like, well, you're going to have to wait three years because it's not happening. So what do you do? For the next like two or three years, all you think about is that final scene from that cliffhanger of the last season on the last episode. And you're like, how are they going to pick up where it left off in the the final scene? That's what's happening here with Zechariah and with all the people of Israel. The cliffhanger that they were left with was Malachi proclaiming this promise. That John would come, that a a child would come and proclaim the way of the Messiah. And right here, this angel comes on the scene and says, he says, hey look, Zechariah, it's time. Like season four or five, whatever it is, about to begin. The prophet is on his way. And he's going to be your son. Elizabeth is pregnant. And the Messiah is now on his way. Your people are about to be delivered The lifetime of waiting that you and Elizabeth have had for a child is about to be over. And the the 400 years of waiting that your people have been waiting on for a word from God is about to be over. And you would think in that moment, Zechariah would be like, so psyched. (laughs) But he replies, he's like, yeah, how am I supposed to know this is true? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And he questions and he doubts. And he's like, are you kidding me? Like, how, how will I know... Now, how, how will I know? Sorry. <laughs> he questions and he doubts. He's like, how am I supposed to know this? Hey, I, I don't believe this. Give me a sign. And you remember the faith of Mary last week? The angel told her what was happening. You're, you're a virgin. You're conceived by the Holy Spirit. You're going to bear a child. Life is going to be difficult for you, but your son is going to save the world. And she was like, okay, let's go. She had such courageous and confident faith in God's power to do the impossible. I mean, it's like such an example of childlike faith in the life of Mary. Well, Zechariah doesn't display that kind of faith. 
Zechariah, he doubts the promises of God. And I kind of get it. He's older. He's waited for a long time. His faith, the childlike sense of faith that he maybe once had is starting to deteriorate in the season of waiting. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. See, time and waiting can often make doubt and cynicism grow in our hearts. The longer we live, the longer we wait, the more we can lose hope. And before we really give Zachariah a hard time, I just kind of have to say, I kind of get it, you know? Like, I get it. See, that was a sore spot for Zechariah for somebody to bring up the child that he, he never had. And then for him to believe that he could have a child was, meant that he would actually have to hope again. And you think, in his life, how many times do you think he hoped and then had his hope shattered? And he's like, no, no, I'm not doing that again. I need a clear sign from you, angel. I need to know that I know that I know that I know before I can let my heart have hope again. See, but the, so I get it. Like, I get it. I'm not slamming Zechariah today. I get it. But the fact remains, Zechariah doubted that God could actually work a miracle in his life. And the angel kind of gets upset with Zechariah. And Gabriel says, look, I came from the presence of God himself to tell you this good news. But you don't believe. And because of your unbelief, you are going to be silent and unable to speak until God decides to open your mouth. So because of his unbelief, God shuts Zechariah's mouth. He makes him mute. And later on in this chapter, in verse 62, we see that the people are signing to Zechariah, which tells us he was probably deaf as well. And so the angel says, look, because of your unbelief, you're going to sit and time out for the next nine months. Like you're just going to have to sit and watch. You can't speak. You won't hear. You're just going to have to sit there in silence for the next nine months. And so here he is, Zechariah. God has completely silenced him and forced him to sit in complete silence. And you remember, like you think about all the things that he probably saw in this nine months. Remember last week, Mary visited them. After she, like the angel told her, like you've conceived, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. And what was the first thing Mary did? She runs to Zechariah and Elizabeth. She comes in. You know how women are. They're getting all excited. Like, you're pregnant, you're pregnant. And they're like so excited. And they're like kind of, and, and, and she's like, and Mary's going, the Messiah. Like this is the Messiah. And Zechariah is sitting in his chair just going like, like he can't, he just has to watch God's faithfulness unfold in front of his eyes. He can't talk. He just has to watch it. And you think about all the nights where he watched as Elizabeth's belly grew and he watched her sing to their child in the womb and he's forced to sit in silence. And I want us to see this morning first the discipline of solitude and silence. See, first, two things to notice about the discipline of solitude and silence. One, God disciplines Zechariah with silence in order to humble him. Last week, I said that one of the great examples of Mary was her humility before God. One of the reasons why God chose to use her when God called her to the life that he had for her, she just humbly said, I don't deserve it, but I'm a humble servant. And she said, let it be according to your word. And I said last week that the reason God was able to use her was precisely because of her humility. She was moldable. She was shapeable. She was clay in the hands of the potter, so to speak. Zechariah, however, when God speaks to him, he doesn't reply with humility. He demands answers. That's pride. And he won't step out in faith. He won't hope. He won't believe in faith because of his pride and his cynicism. And God literally, literally silences him. 
And in his silence, he's forced for nine long months to reflect on the power of God with his eyes and ears closed. Or his ears and his lips closed. And in his silence, he just watches as God's promises come to pass. And he's forced to sit down, shut up, and watch God at work without his assistance. He was a priest. He was used to being involved in all of God's work. And now he just has to sit silently and watch God do his thing while he just sits there helpless. God's humbling him. And I say that because I want you to know that whenever God disciplines his people, it is because of his love. Sometimes he will bring you into, he will bring circumstances into your life that slow you down or silence you, and you may feel small and helpless, and you may feel silent and voiceless and unheard, and it feels like God is punishing you, but it might be that He's actually preparing you. It might be that He's humbling you so that you will learn to trust Him and not in your own strengths. Second thing about the discipline of solitude and silence is we must discipline ourselves to seek silence and solitude in order to experience God's presence in our lives. We talk about spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible study, all that sort of stuff. A spiritual discipline that we need to re- that bring back into our lives is silence and solitude. We live in a hurried, busy, distracting, and noisy world, don't we? We always have headphones on. We're constantly being pulled away in a million different directions. There's noise everywhere. We, uh, when our headphones aren't in and music's not playing, we're at home watching Netflix or Disney Plus or scrolling on our phones. And I'm just here to, it is very rare, and I speak this from my own experience, it is very rare and very difficult to hear God's voice in your life and be gripped by His glory when we are constantly being distracted. I mean, we want to hear from God, but we never stop to listen. When was the last time any of us were still and silent? And on top of all that with social media, we now all have a platform to make our voices heard. And we feel compelled to comment on every Facebook post and every little political issue that comes up, we have to comment on even though we didn't major in economics, even though we don't know anything about foreign policy, even though we don't know anything about all these complicated issues. We feel like because we have an opportunity via social media that we've got to blast our opinion to anybody and everybody that will hear it. Could it be that the reason that we're so fearful and so anxious and, and could it be that we might have less fear and less worry and less anger and a, maybe a greater sense of God's presence in our lives and in our world and in the various issues that we face if we would just discipline ourselves to be silent and be still for once? We talk and we talk and we talk and we distract ourselves with noise and noise and noise. But Psalm 46.10 still rings true. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. And many of you, you're in a season of waiting. And you, and you are tempted to accuse God. Say, I can't hear Him. Where is He? He's not speaking. Perhaps He is. But perhaps we just aren't silent enough to notice. I love what uh, Pastor John Piper says. He says, it would be a rare thing to be gripped and moved deeply in a noisy room. There is a close correlation between stillness and a sense of the stupendous. The most astonishing things about reality will probably be missed by those who use the radio and TV for a constant background drone. 
Be still, be dumb and deaf, and know that I am God. What would it mean for your life if for nine months you could not hear or say anything? I've tried to imagine what it would mean for my ministry and home life. No preaching, no counseling, no singing, no talking, but lots more seeing, lots more looking into the eyes of my wife and sons, lots more reading of the great books, lots more prayer and meditation on the Word of God, all in absolute silence. If God should ever give me such a period, I hope that I would turn it to as much good as Zechariah did. Because when Zechariah came out, he came out filled with the Holy Spirit and singing a song filled with insight and with a sense of stupendous significance of what was about to happen with the birth of Jesus. Zechariah, nine months, total silence, watching the faithfulness of God unfold before his eyes. Nine months to watch and reflect. And you know he probably thought a lot about what he would say when he got his voice back. And when that moment came at the birth of his son, he burst into song. And this is our text for this morning. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? (laughs) And the father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And now he speaks to his son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Two things I want you to see from Zechariah's song this morning. First, is a Christ-exalting vision for his son. One of the things that strikes me about Zechariah's song is this song is sung at the birth of his long-awaited firstborn. He's been waiting for decades for this. He and Elizabeth have dreamed about this for years and years and years. But if you notice, he only speaks about his son in two verses. He talks about, mostly talks about the Messiah, and he sings of Jesus for the majority of the song. And it's only in verses 60, 76 and 77 that he speaks directly to his son. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge <coughs> of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. I've been reflecting on this all week. That is an incredible vision for his son. What's your ultimate desire for your children? Is it for them to be successful? Is it for them to learn piano and violin, multiple languages, how to throw a tight spiral, or hit a jump shot, to excel in school, get into an Ivy or NYU, get a respectable job? Like, what is the ultimate desire for your kids? Those are the things that you're going to be speaking over your child on the day that they're born. 
And those are all good things, and I want all those things for my children. But for Zechariah, there was something so much more important that he wanted for his son. It wasn't that his son would be successful. It was that his son would go before the Lord and prepare the ways for the Messiah and give knowledge of the people of the salvation of God. Nine months of reflection and waiting helped Zechariah rightly understand what his son was for, and that is to give glory to Christ. Next week, we're going to have a child dedication. Uh, Alistair Bentley, he's a fan favorite among the McGee house. And the purpose of our child dedications... And the purpose of that dedication next week when we have uh, Alistair and his parents up here is for us as a church and for Erica and Andrew as parents to commit Alistair's life to the Lord. And for us collectively as a faith community to say over his life that the thing that we want most for that boy is not that he'll one day be able to hit a curveball or that he'll get into Columbia but that his life will be about knowing Christ and making Christ known in this world. That is what made Zechariah so proud to be a father that his son would prepare the way for the Messiah, for the Christ. And with that, Zechariah turned the attention of his... I mean, he says, this is who you're going to be, son. You are going to pave the way for the Messiah. That's all he sings about his son. And with that, he then turns his attention from the son that he and Elizabeth had been longing for to the son that the whole earth had been longing for. And he says two things are true in the birth of Jesus, that God has visited us and God has redeemed us. Verse 68 serves as the main theme of Zechariah's song, which is called the Benedictus, by the way. It's a benediction. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. See, at Christmas, the very thing that we celebrate is that God does not watch us suffer from a distance, but that He enters into our pain to rescue us from it. Every year at Christmas time, I I think I tell this story, but it's so beautiful that I keep telling it. Father Damien was a Roman Catholic priest from Belgium in the late 19th century. And in his research and prayers, he became aware of a leper colony in Hawaii. It was a quarantine camp where lepers from around the world would be shipped and they would be sent there essentially to die. It was a quarantined island. There was no church there. There was no missionaries. That These people were isolated from the rest of the world and left to die and there was no one there to show them God's love. And Father Damien, hearing about the, these people on this island in the middle of nowhere, he went as a missionary. And he made himself vulnerable to the highly contagious disease of leprosy. And he exposed himself to the disease. And he did so because he wanted these lepers to know that they were loved by God. Even though they were outcast to the rest of the world, he wanted them to know that they were loved by God. And in the end, Father Damien was killed by the very disease he exposed himself to. He left his place of comfort and security to enter into a world of death so that those who were dying could experience life. What does that remind you of? That's a picture of Christ at Christmas. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Jesus left the joys of heaven And the security of the right hand of the Father to enter into a world full of sin so that we could be rescued from its curse. 
And every major religion every, and every distortion of Christianity tells us what we have to do to find God. But the Bible tells a story of God making him, Himself vulnerable in finding us. God has visited us, Zacharias says, in Christ. And not only that, He redeems us. He didn't enter into this world merely to empathize with us or just to feel our pain. He entered in this world to redeem us, deliver us from our enemies of shame, guilt, and fear. And He did this by living the life we could never live, experiencing all the sufferings of this world, and by dying the death that we deserved. He bore our sin, our guilt, our shame, and our fears. He bore our cross. And He died the death that we all deserve so that we could have the life that only He deserves. C.S. Lewis says in the Christian story, this is in uh, his book Miracles, by the way. He says in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down from humanity, down further still into the, if the embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life down to the very roots and the seabed of the nature he has created. He didn't just become a child, but he became an embryo. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. And he must stoop low in order to, get to, in order to lift. He must also disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. In Christ, God has come into the world to lift us up and redeem us. He has stooped low to come and bring us out. He has come into the world so that he could carry us out in his hands and on his shoulders. Now some of you are waiting and you're longing for wholeness, for your tears to be wiped away, for God's promises to be answered, for things to be made right. All of those things are found in the coming of Christ. The thought of this was enough to make Zacharias sing and bless God. And we ought to do the same here this Advent season. So let me pray for us this morning. God, we thank you for the song of Zechariah. It was a song that was decades in the making. It was not a song that was written overnight, but it was a song that was written and forged through pain and through tears and through waiting, through hopeless nights and longing. But God, you are faithful and you are always good. On your, you always make good on your promises. Even though Zachariah and Elizabeth had to wait almost a lifetime for a child, you delivered what you promised. And even though Israel had to wait 400 years for a word from God, you gave them a word from yourself. And God, even though we feel like it is taking forever for you to redeem and restore and renew all things like you've promised, we know because of the, the story of Christmas and the, the example of Christ coming into this world that you will make good on your promises. And all of our suffering and all of our longing and all of our hope will be fulfilled when you come again to redeem, renew, and restore all things and draw us unto yourself. And so we wait with eager anticipation for that day. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand? We're going to move into a time of communion. And when I think about Zechariah,
he sings this song about the Messiah coming and visiting and redeeming us. Now, he didn't know what we know. He only knew that the Messiah was coming. He only knew that there was going to be redemption. But he didn't know how it was going to happen. He didn't know the details of how Christ would save us. But we do. Through his death on the cross and in his resurrection, Jesus has trumpeted what Zechariah called the horn of salvation. And we know that this was, we know how this was done, and this was done by the cross of Jesus. By his broken body and his shed blood, we know that we have been redeemed and we have been made new. Our sin has been washed clean by the blood of Christ, and our bodies and our longings have been made whole by the broken body of Christ. And so each week we come and we take the bread and the cup. And that is to remind us, remind us every week that Christ has come. He has visited us and he has redeemed us by sacrificing and offering himself so that we could have life. Also, if you need prayer this morning, if you feel like you're in a season of waiting and longing and hoping, our deacons are up here and we would love to pray with you and pray for you. So when you're ready, if you would come for prayer or for communion, when you're ready.